Let us now read together what we confess in Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 8. There we have God's word summarized as follows. How are these articles divided? The answer into three parts. The first is about God the Father and our creation. The second about God the Son and our redemption. The third about God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Since there is only one God, why do you speak of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And the answer, because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one true eternal God. After the sermon, we will sing from hymn five, the stanzas one and two. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, next Sunday, the Lord willing, we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper. Then we will celebrate the fact that we are one with God and one with each other. But how is that unity created? On what is that unity based? And that is the point of the catechism today. In Lord's Day 8, we are taught that the unity we have with God and each other is based on the unity that God has within himself. It has to do with the fact that within God himself there are no divisions. With the fact that in him there are no parts which are at variance with each other. And that is the way the Lord our God has revealed himself in his word. In Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 we read... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. There are no divisions in him. You cannot separate any parts away from him. And yet, such absolute unity is hard for us to understand. For we are also told that he consists of three persons. How can that be? Even though the Bible explains it in many ways, we still have difficulty understanding tri-unity. That is because now, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12, we see in a mirror dimly. Now we know only in part. In the life hereafter, we will see God face to face, and then we will fully understand God. But we have a hard time understanding not only the unity of God, but also the unity we have with each other. Paul, especially in his letter to the Ephesians, calls this a mystery. It's a mystery for us only because our lives and thinking are permeated by sin. And that is why there have been so many divisions throughout the ages in the church. And so how are we to understand unity? Well, the Lord God also explains this great mystery to us very clearly. Satan likes nothing better than that there be divisions 
and schism in the church and in the world. And therefore, against Satan, we confess the unity of God and the unity of the church. Let us listen to God's word this afternoon as we confess it in Lord's Day 8, and as I've summarized it on the following theme, the witness of true unity through the triune God. We'll look at two things. First of all, the unity of God, and then secondly, the unity of the church. So the theme is the witness of the true unity through the triune God. First, the unity of God, then the unity of the church. The Catechism tells us that the articles of our undoubted Christian faith are divided into three parts, about God the Father and our creation, about God the Son and our redemption, and about God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. And then the following question and answer tells us that these three persons are the one true and eternal God. Now, how do we understand this according to the scriptures? For it appears from this answer, this first answer, that the person of the Trinity, each person of the Trinity, has his own sphere of work. The Father is concerned with creation, the Son with redemption, and the Holy Spirit with sanctification. From this it might appear that when we speak about God the Father and our creation, that this act of creation was done without the benefit of the Son and without the benefit of the Holy Spirit. And that the work of the Son regarding our redemption and the work of the Holy Spirit regarding our sanctification were done without the benefits of the other two persons of the Trinity. But how is it? Is that how it is? Can we separate the work of the triune God in that way? Well, of course not. You cannot separate the three persons of the Trinity. And the Catechism makes that quite clear in other ways. That is obvious, for example, when you read the following Lord's Day. We read there about the work of God the Father, and that he is the God of creation and providence for the sake of Christ his Son. And here the work of the Father is mentioned not without the Son. And that is because there can never be a separation between the Father and the Son and between the Father and the Holy Spirit either. The triune God exists from eternity. And the one person of the Trinity was never without the other person of the Trinity. The Son was there when the earth was created and so was the Holy Spirit. That is quite clear already from the very first page of the Bible. In Genesis 1, the words of our Lord God are recorded where he says, Let us make man and let us make man after our image and after our likeness. The plural is used because it refers to the triune God. And the New Testament teaches the same. For we read in, 1 John, in John 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Well, further on, it says who the word is. The word is Christ. He was with God from the very beginning. And not only was the Son present in creation, so was the Holy Spirit. We read in Genesis 1 verse 2 that the Spirit of God was moving or hovering over the waters. The word Spirit is capitalized in your Bibles 
because it refers to the Holy Spirit. But if it is true that all the persons of the Trinity are involved in each other's work, why then does the Catechism speak about the different works of each person of the Godhead? Well, the answer is straightforward. The Catechism follows the lead of the Bible in that regard. When the Scriptures mention the Father, then they do so most often within the context of His creation and the upholding of His creation. And when the Scriptures mention the Son, then they mention Him most often in connection with His work of redemption. And when the Scriptures mention the Holy Spirit, then they usually do so in connection with his work of recreation and sanctification. With each person, the Trinity, with each person of the Trinity, a special aspect of the work of God is emphasized. But even though they all have their own sphere of activity, all three persons are involved in the work of creation, in the work of redemption, and in the work of sanctification. And so the fact that there are three persons does not rob them of their unity. On the contrary. And the scriptures clearly teach that as well. Listen to what Christ said to his disciples and to the Pharisees. He said, Matthew 11 verse 27, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And those who to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then in John 10, verse 30, the Lord Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And further in John 14, verse 11, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. Christ makes it quite clear. No one can know about the Father except through Christ. He made him known. You cannot separate the one from the other or play them off against each other. And the same thing must be said about the Holy Spirit. We cannot think about the Holy Spirit either apart from the Father and the Son, for he is sent by the Father and the Son. And so we, with the church of all ages, confess the unity of God in three persons. I just said that we confess that with the church of all ages. When we speak about the church of all ages, I also include the Old Testament church. For although the Jew of today will deny that God exists in three persons, the Old Testament believer did not. It is true, of course, that in the Old Testament, the doctrine about the Trinity is not as clear as in the New Testament. But that doesn't mean that it isn't there. On the contrary, listen to what David says in Psalm 51, verse 11. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. David knew about the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament believer also knew very clearly about the coming of the Messiah. The Old Testament church knew, for example, about the angel of the Lord. Of course, all angels are angels of the Lord, created by him and sent by him. But there was one angel who was clearly distinguished from all the other angels of the Lord. 
And that angel is our Lord and Savior himself, the second person of the Trinity. We read about that angel, for example, in Exodus, in Exodus 3. And there the angel of the Lord, which is what he is called in verse 2, speaks to Moses in the burning bush. But now listen to what he says to Moses. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then Moses hid his face, for he was told that he was in the presence of God, and therefore he was afraid to look at him. And in Zechariah, another example where you speak about that special angel of the Lord, for there we see that the angel of the Lord protected the high priest Joshua from the accusations of Satan. And there that angel acts as an advocate, as a mediator between God and man. Again, there is a clear reference here as that angel being the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He is present there in the tribunal of God, pleading the cause of sinners. And in announcing the coming of Christ, Isaiah prophesied that in his name, that his name would be Almighty God. And Jeremiah foretold that his name would be the Lord, our righteousness. And so the Old Testament believer knew about the triune God. They confessed it and they looked forward to the coming of the second person of the Trinity, coming in the flesh so that he will dwell among them and redeem them from their sins. And that is why when Christ did come in the flesh, there were also many, many Jews who did come to believe that the Christ is the Messiah, God having come down in the flesh. Think about the prophetess Anna, for example. She believed it as soon as she saw. And what about that righteous man, Simeon? In their old age, they could rest assured that the Messiah had come and that they had seen him with their own eyes. But not everyone was quick to hear and understand the beautiful truth of the scriptures. It took the disciples a long time before they fully understood the truth of the scriptures about the unity of the triune God. But that was only because they did not yet fully understand the great significance of the wonderful fact of the unity of the Trinity. But that soon changed. Think about the time when some disciples walked with the risen Lord on the road to Emmaus. Christ opened the scriptures for them during that walk. And once their eyes were opened, what did they say? They said, didn't our hearts burn within us while we talked, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures? That's when the truth of the Old Testament really hit home to them. And they realized that he is God, the Son of God. And the same thing can be said about the Holy Spirit. Although the Holy Spirit was fully active in the Old Testament, the full power and splendor of the Holy Spirit especially comes to the fore in the New Testament. For on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out on all nations, even on the descendants of Ishmael. And so the unity in Trinity is a fact to be seen both from the Old and the New Testament. The three persons of the Trinity work in complete harmony with each other. 
They are completely involved with one another. And there is no area of interest that lies outside of the one or the other. And they are totally one. And that is the unity the church must proclaim as well. And live out of. We come to the second point. Namely the unity of the church. Now we live at the time of the New Testament. And the New Testament church is now some 2,000 years old. During those 2,000 years, a lot of things have happened. Many heresies have come about. Many divisions and schisms have assaulted and desecrated the church. And that continues to be the case. And you may ask, and many do, ought the church not be ashamed of the fact that this has gone on and continues to go on? Ought we not to do everything in our power to bring about the unity that God requires? Ought we not to see the unity in the Trinity as an example for the church to follow? Indeed, you're right. If you want to understand the unity that ought to exist in the church, you can only understand it in the light of the unity of the triune God. But then you also have to practice it. But that is where the great difficulty comes in. For God is perfect. And the unity in the Trinity is therefore also perfect. It is a perfect unity. There are no barriers. There are no obstacles obstacles in the way of that unity. But you certainly cannot say that about the church. And you cannot say that about the Canadian Reformed Church either. This church is made up of many sinful beings. It is made up of people whose insights and understandings are terribly flawed. But it is through Christ that we are made one, the mediator of the covenant. He makes us one, and now we have to live up to what he has created. And that's hard for us because we are so sinful. And that, but that is what the church has tried to do throughout the ages. And that is why the church can still exist here on this earth as well. It is God's doing. God continues to purify the church. And he has done that throughout the ages. And he will do that to the end of time. Thankfully for us. But in the meantime, he calls us to live in the truth and to defend the truth. We have to stand on guard against false doctrine. The Lord God God calls us to fight the good fight of the faith. Now I don't have to tell you that unity often does not exist because of the way that we interact with one another. And that is because of our sinfulness, because of our pride. And so we fall away and also other churches come about. But now, let us talk about the unity that we have to create through doctrine. And how the church has fought for that unity throughout the ages. And it was a bitter fight at times. For Satan attacks the church from all sides. 
and he does so especially from within. During the first three centuries of the existence of the New Testament church, many sheep in wolves' clothing attacked the doctrine of the unity of the church. Actually, that already happened during the New Testament times itself, because you see also how Paul writes against false prophets, those people who come with false teachings. But that continued also after the canon was closed. Some removed any vestiges of the personalities of the three persons of the Trinity, for example. They stressed the unity of God, but they did that at the expense of the three personalities of God. There was a man named Sibelius, for example. He was an influential theologian theologian early in the 3rd century, around 215 after Christ. And he taught that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were only three modes of the one true God. The three names of God are his manifestations in different ways and according to different circumstances. As Father, he is the lawgiver of the Old Testament, he said, And as son, he is the incarnate, in other words, the person who became flesh. And as spirit, he is the inspirer of the apostles. But he is the one and the same God. He only manifests himself differently at different times. Sibelius explains this by referring to an earthly father in a normal household. A father could be a laborer outside of the home, an elder in the church, and a consumer in the shop. But they are all three modes of the same person. That's what Sibelius taught. But perhaps you don't see the danger in this right away, but the church did. They saw that by so arguing, you put your salvation in jeopardy. For in this way... It would be the father who hung on the cross and not the son. For Sibelius denied the uniqueness of the sacrifice of Christ in this way. And in this way it would be impossible to see Christ also as both man and God. Well, the church fought against him and eventually he was excommunicated. But the struggle for the unity of the faith went on. The church had to get it right. God's truth demands it. Then comes along a man like Arius. He saw Christ only as a man. A very good man, mind you, but nevertheless a man. He saw him as the firstborn of creation. And that he was a man who was without sin. But he did not believe that Christ was God. He didn't believe that of the Holy Spirit either. And so the battle continued to rage in the church. Ministers were were deposed and exiled. And the theologians debated the issues for generations until it was finally dealt with in the Council of Nicaea in the year of our Lord 325. Why was there such a long fight about these issues? Why did the theologians busy themselves with these things? And why did the people in the pew listen and participate in the discussions about these things? 
because they realized that their salvation was at stake. And they realized that they would not have unity with God if they did not confess Him properly. It was about the defense of the unity of the Trinity and therefore also a defense of the unity of the church. For you see, God's name was under attack. And for that reason, so was the church. For God is the head of the church and you cannot sever the head from the body. If you no longer believe the truth about God, then you can sever yourself from him. If you want to be saved by Christ, you cannot be saved by him unless you confess him as God, as your God. John, in his first letter, clearly also states that you must believe in Christ or else there is no salvation. And that is why also the people in the pews could not sit back in their easy chairs and not be involved in those issues in the church. They also had to know and defend the truth against the attacks of Satan. And that is why the creeds and the confessions were formulated in order to summarize the truth of the Bible against heresies, against heretics. And what do we have now? We now have the three ecumenical creeds. These early creeds came out of the struggle of the church to reject heresy and to express unity in the common faith concerning God. Indeed, one of them, the Apostles' Creed, is a result of that struggle. And in a most beautiful way, this creed expresses succinctly the Orthodox faith. An eminent theologian said about this creed, as the Lord's Prayer is the prayer of prayers, the Ten Commandments, the law of laws, so is the Apostles' Creed, the creed of creeds. It contains all the fundamental articles of the Christian faith necessary to salvation in the form of facts, in simple scriptural language, and in the most natural order, the order of revelation from God and the creation down to the resurrection and life everlasting. In the coming weeks, beloved, the Lord willing, the Heidelberg Catechism will guide us through all the statements and doctrines of this biblically-based creed. And these statements in the Apostles' Creed show the riches of God's Word. And by examining this creed and by maintaining the truth of the other confessions of our churches, we may express the unity and not only of God, but also of the church. In our churches, we have to be constantly on guard to keep the bride of Christ pure. And therefore, you have to be a knowledgeable people. As church, we must know about the issues that confront us in the church and in the world. In 1 John 5, the apostle speaks about Three witnesses, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and that these three agree. Those three are a unity. And he says that unity may not be broken. The water refers to the water of baptism. It is a reference to the cleansing of our sins. How many heresies have not been proclaimed concerning the baptism as instituted by God? 
And if the church wants to remain unified, it must do so by rejecting, on the basis of God's word, all those heresies. And in 1 John 5, is also spoken about the blood. That is a clear reference to the blood of Christ and his unique sacrifice on the cross. If you do not believe that Christ is the unique Son of God, and through his blood you are saved, you have lost unity with the Father. Without faith in Christ, you cannot be saved. And the text also speaks about the witness of the Spirit. And that is a clear reference to Pentecost. The water, the blood, and the Spirit, these three agree. You cannot have the one without the other. There has to be unity. Ultimately, it is the Spirit alone who can bring forth true unity. The Spirit clearly speaks through the Scriptures. And that is why we must study those Scriptures and open our hearts to them. For the Spirit of God is mightier than the Spirit of the world. The Spirit brings us to faith and helps us to persevere during times of distress, during times of persecution, whatever Satan may send our way. And then if we are faithful to God's word in all things, he will also help us and our children to persevere. It is only the Holy Spirit who can bring about unity together with Christ and the Father. Brothers and sisters, we stand in awe, once again, of the greatness of God. We stand in awe of his simplicity, of the fact that he is totally unified, that he is one. Ultimately, it is beyond our understanding. Now we can do little more than confess it. But confess it we must. And we must also live out of that confession, for it is the confession of the church. And who is the church? That's you. And that means you also have to put it into practice. During this time on earth, there is still much discord, not only in the world, around us, but also in the church. But here on earth, there must be a continual striving towards unity. For we are looking forward to experience the unity in the life hereafter, the unity of God, and the unity of those who belong to him. For then, Satan can no longer sow discord. And that is the time we are looking forward to together. And thus we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. And in the meantime, keep us faithful and watchful. Keep us in the unity of true faith. Amen.